0: Keith Herring. Podcast episode. White Hot Magazine. Noah Becker host. Keith Herring documentary made by Maripol. Interesting stuff. I'm just kidding. I like that kind of mantra. You'll hear a bit of that mantra. You'll hear a bit of that mantra on the broadcast this evening. ha 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 ha. Anyways, what's professional? Are you a professional? What do you do? What is your job? Who are you? Why are you listening to this? But in all seriousness, it's Keith Haring time, our world podcast. Enjoy the following. Here on the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast, I'm your host, Noah Becker. It's time for something very interesting. It's a documentary that was made by the French artist Maripol, and this is the audio, but I really like the audio, and it has an all-star cast of characters, and those characters are 1980s Art World figures that you will... Recognize. Enjoy.
1: Art Boy Sin. 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 Boy Sin As. Boy Sin If. Sin As If. As If Sin. As If Boy. Art boy as, boy if as, sin as if, sin as boy, sin boy art, art boy as, art as boy, art as sin, sin as boy, boy as if, if sin boy, as if no, as if no, as if no, sin as no. No, if, as, sin, as, lick.
2: The 80s for a lot of New York downtown culture was about rebellion, which is at the core of rock and roll and a lot of things that have changed America. It was about rebelling. It was about we're going to do this whether you like it or not.
1: Lick, Lick art, fat, fat, if, no, no, if, art, We were
3: young. We were all in our early 20s. We were all very interested in painting and art and music and writing and dance and theater. It was a very, very vibrant, vibrant vibrant community. And at that time, anyone could really do whatever they wanted.
1: It was kind
4: of like being in somebody's parents' house and the parents are out of town. It was like all of the adult people in power. Even in the government, none of those people lived in New York City.
3: New York City was burned out. New York City was bankrupt. It was like a war zone. However, at the same time, Wall Street was booming. That dichotomy, I think, was what Keith was depicting. Everything was right at the right time for a recipe to make this Absolute cultural flowering. It was a key moment in the zeitgeist where
4: uptown and downtown and the gay clubs and the straight art world all intertwined. It was an explosion of creativity that has had reverberations ever since. And Keith and Kenny were uh, at SVA at that point, they were art students. Mm
5: At met Basquiat in 78, actually at school, he was hanging out at SVA, and we started drawing in the street together and I introduced him actually to Keith. Everything was all at the same time. Keith was putting these Xerox posters out uh, in the street, Jean-Michel was drawing Samo and spray-painting, and then at the same time the Times Square show happened and when he saw all the excitement going on with, you know, Futura and, and Fat Five, Five Freddy and these artists that we met in Times Square, it was like, it just kind of exploded, like basically. It was downtown and uptown colliding, you know, with hip hop and the art and everything.
2: He wanted to be a part of the graffiti energy at that time, but he didn't want to be a part of it. He felt very strongly like him as this white guy didn't want to come into doing it and take the shine and the exposure away from the young, mostly black and Latin kids that were doing it. He had a lot of respect for wanting to find a unique way to participate.
5: He met all the graffiti artists, uh, from that were in the Times Square show and then boom a week later he was doing all his subway drawings he was just onto something you know and it just exploded in like a literally the first week he did a, i don't know probably a couple hundred of them all over and then it was just like wow it was like it became this thing
2: real fast in the subways what they would do at the time when they didn't have a new ad to put up in the frames for advertisements, that um, they would put just a piece of black paper there. And what Keith found, which was so brilliant, that just with a simple piece of chalk, he can go and in that perfect black frame, make a drawing.
5: He had created the symbols, which was his own language, semiotics, a visual language, That one's definitely about some kind of domination and submission and uh, money. There was lots of money symbols, and like he was pretty blatant about people in power subjugating the weak, and that was a very big part of, I think, the messages that he was doing.
6: The fact that a calligraphic you know, letter, a hand-drawn letter or something, is is a part of earlier history than later the typographical, you know, lettering. So, I've always been interested in the graffiti movement as a kind of throwback to the roots of language. You know, semiotics is a study of the roots of language. It involves etymology and usages and the history of the language, and and likewise, graffiti is a is a a way of going back to a more primitive type of communication device.
7: The drawings would last anywhere from one or two days, or sometimes three weeks or so. But soon, there were hundreds if not thousands. And he, for him, for Keith, the millions of people who go through the subway became the real world. So for him, this was his public. This, he felt that most of his people never went to see an exhibition. Many of them never went to the Museum of Modern Art or the Metropolitan Museum. So in a way, he felt this was the museum. So he was bringing
8: art to the real people's museum. He has a concept of art making and installation that fits the culture. It's like it has a cultural place. Like when those early drawings were made in the subway, They were so important because you experienced them graphically as the maker but also the context of where they were in. And then of course as his work developed it became socially conscious, you know, that you were aware of in fact what these pictographic images began to mean. It was not just empty poupée, you know, it had gone beyond this concept. Like, Gilles Deleuze, the great French philosopher, talks about
7: the idea of scanning through mapping lines of travel. So literally, without even planning already, he was taking all of these different lines, and the lines went outside the perimeters of your influence. Suddenly, the whole landscape of travel got involved with the work he was doing. So his studio spread everywhere.
9: So he was in a permanent process, and therefore I also call it the endless or the never-ending, the unlimited line, because it never ends. I mean, he stops the line, but he keeps on until his death.
4: that it was at that point the art world was really 99% white men people of color were not getting any shows Asian artists weren't getting any shows women were not getting any shows
2: Like as many people said, Soho was white walls, white wine, and white people. Which is okay, but it's good to have a mix of some other kind of people, because New York is full of all these different kinds of people. And in the art world, you didn't see much diversity as far as skin color. And Keith liked to see different colors of people and the energies from all these different people that make New York what it is. He
10: became
2: a very big supporter and fan of other graffiti artists like Crash, Daze, Lady Pink, like a real supporter and a real fan in the most sincerest way. I
7: mean he was one of the first people to recognize dancers, hip-hop dancers for example, break dancers. So, when we had exhibitions there's always those elements coming into the gallery. For hours and hours, the idea of people mixing music, that was the beginning of scratching for example. We used to see it in the gallery, always. He'd bring it forward to encourage them. He'd give them a a place of stardom. The same thing would, in fact, uh, rap music, as they used to call it that time, which evolved into hip-hop. So he got to know all the groups, for example. He got to be very good friends. Run DMC, for example. Or Public Enemy, for example. And he did the album covers. He did murals for schools, etc. So this engagement with the culture outside was very live for him.
6: of music and art. And uh, it wasn't just in the downtown white community, it was in the black community as well. And so what preceded hip hop and rap emerging in the late 70s in Bronx and Harlem was the graffiti scene. And I always say, you know, that the graffiti scene paved the way for hip hop and rap.
1: to get out.
6: The spoken art is almost similar to the calligraphic art you know it's a kind of going back in time to the roots of the music you know so I think that um you had the, the black scene uptown and the white scene downtown doing a similar kind of activity. you know. And both of them were really trying to make an alternative art form, which was a public art as opposed to a, an elitist, you know, domestic art or marketable art. It was like putting art right on the street, available to the public and not commodifying it.
11: His art was very much about movement. The line. You know, the line did not stand still. You know, even though it's a static, Piece on a canvas in two dimensions, it, it is very much alive and it's very, very much about movement.
7: It was always dynamic and always immediate. There is no preparation, there's no postponement, so hence he was fearless. That is why he never needed any preparatory notes, drawings, ideas written down. Never use an eraser, no mistakes. The moment was now, always now.
2: I was the first person to take Keith to the Paradise Garage, which became a big part of his life. I had been a few times before. Although it was mostly a gay club, Friday nights, were open to straight as well as gay, which was the night that I mostly went. Keith had heard about the club, wanted to go. I took him, we got in. He was so excited and within later that week, he had got a meeting with Michael Brody, who was the one of the owners and had a meeting and told him who he was and what he was doing with his art and how he wanted to just bring his work into the club, and be a part of the whole garage excitement. And within no time, he was. Where his work was decorating the club, and he was, I remember the first big performance, Grace Jones had Keith body painted Grace, created an amazing elaborate headdress. Uh, I went with Jean-Michel that night. We were up in the DJ booth, smoking big joints of incredible weed, as Jean-Michel would always do, would roll up and light up anywhere. and. Uh, Keith was a big star, and we were able to be in the VIP booth, which was Larry's DJ booth, Larry LeVan, who's the great DJ of dance music.
11: Love, loved DJs, loved music. Uh, you know, he, he loved Larry LeVan. Oh my goodness. And Larry LeVan to me is like a DJ God.
3: The DJ was Larry LeVan, who was one of the first DJs in New York to bring house music. And Keith loved that club. And it was a hypersexual place because people would drop ecstasy and dance all night.
10: His freedom, he would just let loose. Uh, Juan, completely opposite. His lover, complete opposite. He'd be in the booth, he'd be next to Larry, but Keith would be out there like an angel, all over the place. Not one spot in the room, all over the place. Soaking wet from sweat, just soaking wet, hour after
8: hour.
0: The fun memory was how wonderful was to go dancing with him at the Paradise Garage, and he was, most a religious experience there because the people and the music and the space, something happened and it was really special. And the only reason we could go in on Friday night when it was the gay night was thanks to Kate.
10: And that was the relief, the inspiration, the, um, the camaraderie to be around like-minded people. The, the, the most beautiful thing about the garage was that it was Gay, straight, black, white, young, old, rich, poor people who
1: love to
7: dance.
1: He just you know was an artist that really looked at club culture and really took that and incorporated in his in his art um, with all the movement as well as you know that that DJ thing with the two turntables is when I saw it I just was like so touched and I thought it was beautiful.
4: That kind of all media you know like all entry pass, you know to the world he was going to connect every way that he could. I brought them up to the sign and sat them down and showed them some animations and said this is a very crude animation system but this is what we can do I mean it was the state of the art in animation at the time but it was limited to how many light bulbs there were The same way I saw him go like this in the Times Square show you know I brought him into the sign and he was he was just hungry for everything so as soon as he saw it he threw himself into it and, you know, sent out this, his radiant baby animation to shows all over the world. He was very proud of it.
9: He opened up for a totally new way of using and working in public space. And that was not graffiti. It was a very different language and you can really see it nearly as an installation over the whole city.
4: Besides the obvious
12: um, connection between the, the, you know, break the borders between fine art and commercial art or whatever, or high art and low art, or I mean, distinctions people are always making. And that, I mean, obviously sort of by, you know, with him doing the films and with doing interview and doing um, the silk screens, which made it really available and made it really public and um, doing a lot of things like that was sort of dealing in a lot of the same areas or with the doing he was doing his advertisements and things like that and I mean since he started as a illustrator first as a commercial artist and then um, you know so there were there are some similarities there just because because the things I've done like that with doing things in public and wanting to do um, things in a lot of different worlds besides just the the closed art world Um, and sort of forcing the art world to take to take into account those things, or to take those other things seriously, or to maybe see, to change the definition or broaden the definition of what art is, or where it you know starts and stops. Um, so I mean, I suppose we have have those things in common, little, but also the whole idea of the artist being of the artist almost as a performer or as a um, the the image of the the artist being. Art itself, you know, where, where sort of like Andy, just by Andy being himself, he was being art. I mean, or by him, the way that he, um, I mean, the things he said, the place he went, the things he wore, the things he talked about, things like that, became it all got became part of the it was all like one performance sort of.
8: Exposing partly, is exposing your own persona yeah, as mean, an by, art and using
12: um, using the camera and and. Uh, and video and, and media to as a tool sort of or as an as a extension of yourself and, and making it really be yourself and making it making it almost be art, you know. And I think that's that's one one of the things that sort of that I learned from Andy and that I have or learned how to deal with from Andy and and have been much more conscious of because of Andy.
11: As far as the pop shop goes, he was uh, criticized uh, for making it too available, making his work too available in the form of a t-shirt, in the form of a hat. So if you couldn't afford $100,000 painting, a $800 print, you can afford a $20 or $30 t-shirt. And at the time, that was a radical idea, you know, for a fine artist, quote unquote, to make merchandise. It was unheard of. Uh, And now, you know, he's the, the granddaddy of that.
9: One thing to say about the pop shop, because it was criticized many times by people being commercial, is would he have had the possibility to do that pop show at the Documenta 10 of Catherine David in 1997, or if he would have done it at the last Documenta last year, so 2012, people would have understood the implications of that artwork at once. They would have seen it as anti-capitalistic, as a criticism, against our economy, system, about the consumer society, our corporate world, and they would have understood that at once. I mean, there were many artists following this idea and doing shops and whatever, so people would have contextualized it precisely as a critical statement and not as a commercial statement.
13: The irradiated baby is not necessarily a happy thing. It's a rather terrifying thing. I always read it as that. Of course, it took on a life of its own, and you know, when it had T shirts, etc. But I always saw it as as an expression of the fear of of, of nuclear power and of, of, of the nuclear bomb. As people write histories of downtown, what has been written out and no one talks about is nuclear activism and the very real fear in the 70s, especially, of nuclear holocaust and that, that we would, that the Russians and the Americans would blow each other apart and, and destroy the rest of the world in the process and um, you rarely see criticism related to it and yet Herring did an incredible number of drawings.
9: The 80s were a time of a lot of fear about the atomic war, racism, AIDS, all those uh, themes were totally present. We didn't see so much future.
2: I guess it became more apparent, as Keith would later become more well-known for his art, um, more well-known as a personality, He he would use his work as a vehicle to express his political views about the things that he wasn't happy about or things that he felt needed to be changed. The first one that I remember was an image, it was a poster, I believe it said Free South Africa, It was a huge black image and a small white image, as if to say that there's a lot of black people, but there's a small amount of white people that have control, like a dominant kind of control. Not many artists were using their work in that strongly political way. There were some, but Keith made it a big part of what he did.
11: It's almost, it's almost uh, to embarrass someone into action. You know, it was, it was meant to create conversation and and to, uh, to influence change.
3: He was very active against racism and that's why he was so very, outraged at the death of michael stewart he was a uh, african-american young man he was uh, 25. he was murdered on september 15th of 1983 by five white police officers he was coming home for the evening it was probably about 3 a.m and he lived in brooklyn with his mother and father so he was taking the double l train at 14th street and first avenue the police said that he was writing graffiti, that they tried to arrest him and he resisted arrest. But I highly doubt that because Michael was an unusually gentle, soul, um, kind, soft person. It was extremely racist. Everyone was devastated. In particular, Keith. Keith was devastated
7: what's really important to see with keith's work is is his character as a human being as a person a very responsible person uh, living in our world and extremely involved in the daily information that comes through the media and the streets uh, everywhere so in a sense he was one of the rarest people who reflect back a real political consciousness. So the political aspect uh, of unrest, of uh, oppression, of slavery, of racism—all those aspects
11: were really come up in his work. He has the privilege of being like this famous artist now. You know, he's traveling the world. He's he's you know uh, selling work. And he felt a, re- a responsibility to, to be able to use that to, to send a message, to send various messages. Uh, a lot of uh, political, a lot of, a lot of uh, the art was political. It's amazing that, you know, uh, a painting could cause a change, right? But that's, that's the power of it.
3: Well one of the most famous paintings on the um, FDR on the Harlem River Drive is a huge Keith Herring painting on the cement slab of a handball court. You see it when you're driving past. I see it every time I drive past. Crack is whack. And so Keith was very very political in that regard as well because crack was devastating our communities and, our, and the, the creative community, the Hispanic and African-American communities at that time, in the early 80s. So that crack whack painting on the Harlem River Drive, no one, no other graffiti writer has ever painted on that for all of these years, out of respect for Keith.
11: We spoke about the crack whack wall because it was two blocks from where I grew up. And I remember him telling me that he was arrested for doing that. He was arrested for doing the Kracker's Whack Wall, and that, and you know, it's so uh, ironic now that you know now it's like maintained by the city, and now the city actually calls it Kracker's Whack Park. And then over the, the test of time, what happens is that you know now, twenty some odd years later, you know that neighborhood is is proud of their Keith Herring.
3: According to the report from the Office of Technology Assessment in the year 1981, the Reagan administration proposed budget for AIDS research was naught. The proposed budget for research and education in 1982 was naught. In 1983, President Ronald Wilson Reagan and his administration's proposed budget for the epidemic of acquired immune deficiency syndrome was naught. It wasn't until 1984 that the president proposed spending money on those in the United States who
10: were dying. Too many people we knew were dying. And it was important that we make a stand and say that you gotta be careful here in life, it's precious. This was, of course, one year before people knew about AIDS and HIV. All the, the the right-wing people that said that it was God's revenge on being, please, you know, that was so hurtful, that was so... We had a president that never said AIDS.
4: So what's on your mind, Mr. President?
3: Well, I'm Frank Mazurani, and I'm here to say it's time my commission got underway. But they can't work fast, they can't be smart, because if they don't reflect me, then I'm... Racists, you know what I say. I need some sexist, you know what I say. I need some racists, some sexist, some homophobes. No one even looks gay, so they got to be male. They got to be white. They got to be straight and lean to their right.
10: You had to have people like act up, to make it an issue. Uh, the Gay Men's Health Center, those kind of places, really took the 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 onus and said this is a disease that's killing us. So, you know, you don't don't. Don't try to play like uh, you're being righteous about it. And who who knew? You know, Keith. Who would know?
3: of the first artists in our community to become part of ACT UP um, during the AIDS epidemic, which absolutely devastated the East Village Arts community. Uh, more people died in, in our community, I believe, than in, in the whole Vietnam War.
13: I think what Keith understood from that uh, graffiti world was that uh, his bold graphics and his works uh, were a wonderful way of getting the message out about AIDS. And, and he created very iconic images that we remember um, about the virus. And so there's some little bit perhaps of the uh, the graffiti artist in him that that helped promote uh, safe sex, awareness, et cetera, in that period. And of course, you know he was involved in Act up, and uh, very importantly.
14: When the the 50 artists came in to do the building, and there was all this activity the weekend before it opened in June of 1989, Keith Haring had decided that he was going to paint in the men's bathroom on the second floor. That was the space he chose. And we are now standing in what used to be the bathroom. Um, The only thing that we took out in the renovation was the fixtures, but we've left the room exactly as it was as he painted it otherwise. He spoke to Dave Nimmons, who was our president of the board at that time, who stopped by to see how he was doing it, and asked him, "Okay, what can't I do? Like, what are the rules that I have to follow when I'm doing this? And Dave said, none. He used the spirit of the moment and this place in which he found himself and what was going on to decide what to do, so he never drew anything. So there was no sketch for this mural. The mural occurred as he painted it. and so And he did it in a day. Uh, and, and it became this great celebratory thing. What's not typical about this piece is that he put a title on it. It's called Once Upon a Time. Um, the intention was to speak to gay life at the 20th anniversary of Stonewall. So what does he do? He does this great celebration of male sexuality of the 70s pre-AIDS, painted by a man who is a year away from dying of AIDS and speaking to people who would come later who would not have had his experience and wouldn't know what he was talking about? So there's this wonderful dialogue, if you think about it, between what it represents when he did it in the middle of the AIDS crisis, and then what it means to another generation or two later, who did not experience the '70s, who have lived in an era where they don't know anything except AIDS having existed, uh, and who and who get a glimpse back into that time because of the work that he did. I mean, it's this wonderful dialogue that I think, if you meditate on it, you can get lost in it, I think, in terms of what the piece means and why it's still powerful today. And it's not just because it has sexual imagery in it, it's because it's, it really evokes a period. And he he was a master of 80s art. I mean, uh, so he's, he's speaking in the 80s of the 70s and talking to the people in 2012.
13: there was a part of that celebratory 1970s gay sexuality that um, you know to have as much sex as possible was to be as as politically active as possible and of course that all shifts with the aids crisis but hearing even uh, when promoting safe sex was still promoting sex and, and understanding that there's a kind of joy in human life and interaction there that uh, he wasn't going to demonize, though a lot of people, including a lot of gay men, had started to demonize uh, because of AIDS and, and the toll that it took on, you know, on the culture. Uh, when I moved to New York, one out of every two gay men was HIV positive. And, so, and it was a death sentence at that point because there was no way to treat it. And so in the face of all of that, to be still sex positive, as Herring was, is really a, a surprising and important thing.
0: Incredible relation with children. Every occasion, every party, every dinner party, he always wanted to be at the children's table. And most of his time he was on his f- own force playing with these children, ignoring grown ups, practically totally.
2: Everybody wants to be a
15: nobody wants to be a I never really realized that Keith was an adult per se you know it was always uh, he was always on my level always eye contact always like deep conversations and even though I was so young I, he made me feel like one of the rest you know
0: nobody
2: really wants you
0: when you're losing.
15: I, I saw his work, and you know, there was like elements that I understood, but for me, it was just so pure joy on every level. Growing up, I know i've I've managed to discover so much more about his work and and how impactful from an activism level he was, but it's just. Uh, just pure joy, man. That's all I remember when I see Keith is, is pure joy. Mm-hmm. He really understood us. Like, he really took the time to, like, have that moment and and make us care more as children. It's made us feel like we ourselves should be active. And so I think Keith, like, completely planted that seed at a very young age.
11: Everybody to be, oh.
6: His work, like Brulee was was very educational. It, it was like, there was, a kind of, uh, there was a kind of feeling that he was also kind of like a teacher, you know, and, and his work di- dealt directly with children and younger people, and he was actually kind of teaching them things, you know, not only how to draw, but also like subject matter, you know.
8: That's it? What? You don't need more?
16: No, just to do a little it's black and black. Okay, let me see. Now this is just what I like to do. It's the most fun thing to do for me. Yeah, this is legal. I've been drawing since, I mean, everyone's been drawing since they were little. It's a thing that everyone did. So probably the only time I thought like, oh, this is really cool, I should do it more often, was when I think I saw it was a Basquiat book or a Keith Herring book. And I was like, oh, they can actually do this for a living. So I found out about him because my mom and my dad got a book on him. So I thought it was really interesting how these, it was just these characters, but he made made it bigger than just these figures dancing. So that's probably what got me into art mostly I'm just seeing his earlier works and how they're just these figures dancing and then seeing progressively the stuff he did on subways on the empty advertisements um, how to a lot of people they meant so much more like just pregnant women and like happiness and joy. People got so much out of that and they grew this love for him. I think that's really interesting over just something that is figures, you know? So I love that about him, how he made something simple become an icon.
8: The key is in the work. Because the works, the gestural aspect of drawing, they relate to language. So in fact, the drawing becomes a kind of pictographic uh, perception. It becomes a way to read and to illustrate knowledge, and that was the key to those, to the to the works and to the drawings.
7: It was like his his writing, the way that he wrote, and. Um... You know, you could tell that he was, you know he was very uh, hm, I don't know if I would say spiritual, but um, definitely political. and he had a, he had a lot of uh, ideas and and probably spiritual as well.
9: With his symbols, he had a message and not just a message, he opened up a new way of thinking for people. It was inspired by finding a language he could use in all his works, which would talk directly to the people.
8: The key with Keith's work, and still why it's so important, it's this connection direct connection to to people who responded to
0: it.
8: He forced the culture to accept its, uh, its presence, its political identity, its sexual identity, all of these things, and they became part of the culture.
7: In some ways he was maybe the most caring, uh, the most giving. Uh, he made a point of Art was a gift for everybody.
8: It was a rebel of acculturation, meaning that art could assist you in a vision of what the world could be.
5: Keith was very aware and was in, like, passionately wanting to make statements and change in oppressed people and uh, the, the difference between the powerful and the weak.
3: It's one of the highest spiritual tasks any artist can do is to take the suffering of the culture and transform it through the artwork into political activism or a voice for the greater good and I think Keith Herring was absolutely successful in that in that aim.
0: Follow White Hot Magazine on the web. It's www.whitehotmagazine.com. You can follow White Hot Magazine on Instagram and Twitter, and you can follow Noah Becker on Instagram. Have a wonderful afternoon. See you
4: around the art world.